All right, now you guys that are uh, you guys that are on uh, online, um, I'm going to try to a talk about what I've written on the board. I think uh, Fred took a, a photograph of it, so it will be available to you. But you're going to have to just kind of listen, because for the rest of the book uh, of Ecclesiastes, starting with verse 16. Um, Solomon has brought God into the picture, as you know, at the end of chapter 2, where he says that God is the source of wisdom, knowledge, and joy. God gives us those gifts. And in chapter 3, which uh, we studied last week through verse 15, he comments on three key ideas, which he brings in as he gives that, that poem, that 14 uh, opposites that uh, are called merisms that we went through. Time to be uh, warned, time to die, etc. Then he concludes that, and this is so important, God in his sovereignty and his providence makes everything beautiful in its time. Two, he's placed eternity in every person's heart. And we explained what that means. And yet three, he says, I'm going to paraphrase it, we cannot understand totally, completely, comprehensively everything God's doing. I like to use the word, there is a mystery. So what I've done on the board here, and this is what Solomon's going to be dealing with the rest of the book. We, here's humanity, we are finite. I'm assuming you all know what that means. We're temporal. I'm assuming you know what that means. And in one sense, this is the most important. We are depraved, rebellious sinners. And the Bible makes it very clear uh, and there's so many passages I could go to illustrate this, but that in, in every aspect of our sin, we, are, we affect our emotions, our bodies, our minds, our will. All are affected by sin. And here is God. He is infinite. I'm using the contrast here. He's infinite. He's eternal. And I'll just use all these words together. He's perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. It is absolutely impossible for God to sin. It is absolutely impossible for God to accept evil. It is contrary to his nature. In addition, God is sovereign. And this is what Solomon is commenting on this for the rest of the book. He's already mentioned it, that God is providential. In his sovereignty, he's not absentee landlord. He's not a master clockmaker. He is intimately involved in his creation. And his providence is real. He is accomplishing his purposes in space-time history. Now, the other aspect of this, and again, I'm using words that are in Scripture. This is, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2. We are an enemy of God, an enmity of God, which God calls us. We're an enemy of God because of this. And we are therefore putting all of these things together in capable of understanding God and his eternal providence. So, in a, in a sense, when it comes to God as the subject, this is a word that's used in the Bible, there is a mystery. That doesn't mean we can't understand some of it, part of it, maybe eventually all of it. There's always a mystery to understanding what God is doing. And you all know, I mean, in your own personal lives, I mean, you know what that can mean. That does. If, if, if God brings us into a, a personal relationship with him and we get sick, should we conclude Christians never get sick? Well, you always struggle with it. Why does this? So we use words like God permits this, God allows this for greater, greater purposes. Do we know what those purposes are? No, because his sovereignty, his providence is determining that. But rarely does he tell us, I'm permitting this to happen to you now because this is what I want to accomplish. Rarely does he explain it. You understand what I mean? So what Solomon's going to do for the rest of the book, at, at least until we get to about chapter 10, but what he's going to be doing with the rest of the book is trying to understand, I believe that there's a God, I believe in his sovereignty and providence, I believe these things about him, but I also believe all this about me, Solomon. And here I am, I'm trying to figure this stuff out. And so what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to look at a series of these mysteries, that's the word I think fits here, a series of these mysteries that Solomon can't figure out. And it's frustrating for him, 
it's stressful for him, and it's part of why he still says some of this is vanity, using that Hebrew word, vanity, futile, it doesn't seem to make sense to him. And so he's just, in, a, in I believe, a brutally honest way, sharing with us, even if he's the wisest man who ever lived, has brought God into the picture, affirms all this about God, he says, I'm still struggling. I'm still, I'm still dealing with some of these frustrations of life. And if, as we go through some of this, we're going to have to deal with some of the language that's 3,000 years old, but I think we can do it satisfactorily. We're going to be, in our own lives, we're going to say, yeah, I agree with that. I can understand because I still have that as a source of frustration. So you guys that are online, um, did you follow what I was just saying? You, you didn't have the advantage of seeing my beautiful artwork and my perfect penmanship here. Which my daughter always says, Dad, you were the worst writer. She never can understand anything. That's right. That's right. We got it. Somebody trying to get my attention here. All right. Okay, everybody's with me? Yes. Any questions in here? You all have that deer in the headlight look, so I don't know quite what to do with it. No questions. Give us a little time to digest that. All right, you have a 30 seconds. <laughs> More than we had before. So does that mean we're incapable of understanding God, and so we just have to walk on faith? For the most part, yes. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. If you believe God is good, and you believe God is just, and this is where Solomon's going to start. <coughs> we have got a little bit of a problem. We've got the Holocaust to explain. If we leave God as just, we have to we have to explain Vladimir Putin, his absolute brutality in Ukraine, where he's destroying village after village after village. Say, this is my right to do that. I mean, those kind of, how do you explain it? Or how do you, let's get down to, how do you explain it? A very, very close friend of mine who's, uh, he's in our church and so on. He's he's in his late thirties. Uh, he's they've now he's been dealing with cancer for quite a long time. Now he's got brain lesions all over his his brain of cancer. I mean he's he's, he's he has two little kids. He's not going to survive this year. They're beginning to prepare. And how do I answer that? How do I deal with that as a Christian? Here's here I am. There's God. So I have a choice. I either do not believe God is good and just, or I still believe good, God is good and just, but eternity is going to make sense of this. And that's what Solomon keeps coming back to. That's why he said at the end of uh, the middle of chapter 3, God's placed eternity in every human heart. But the third point, don't try to figure out everything God's doing. Because this is who we are. And it's just, it's, it's, it's common sense, but it's frustrating for us. How can the finite ever understand the infinite? How can the temporal ever understand the eternal? Well, the common sense answer is we can. So, therefore, therefore, what we must do is trust him. That he knows what he's doing. Because if we don't trust him, then we fall back into the position of, I don't know if you're familiar with this term, but then we fall back into the position of fatalism. We're, we're, we're just, uh, we're, we're caught in this deterministic vice of things just happen and we have to accept it. Okay, so how do we get to that point? Or we can bridge that gap where it makes sense to us. Where do we, how can that, how does that trust come about? What are the tools that we have to get there? Well, I mean, that, that's a, a great question. It's a huge question. <laughs> well, th there are several simple but very important things that one must do every single day but i believe you start with what god has revealed to us what he has told us in his word i mean 
you have to remember, and I know you know, but maybe you never thought about it this way. The Word of God is a verbal revelation from the infinite, eternal, perfect, holy, righteous God to finite, temporal, sin-cursed people. And so that means for you and me, if we want to understand God, we have to go to what he's told us. You cannot, don't go to Oprah. Don't go to Dr. Oz. Don't, don't go to any of these gurus on social media. Don't go to Fox News. And I just chose that because that's what you guys watch. You don't watch anything else. But so, I mean, that, that's not where you get the insight God wants you to have. And, and the second thing is, I think it is so important, and sometimes we miss this or skip it. It is so important, whether it's on Sunday or periodic times throughout a week, that you are connected with and surrounding yourself with other believers who are in the same journey. I don't understand what God's doing. Do you? Well, no, but I can tell you, I've been through this. This is how he helped me get through it. I'll share it with you. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that he gives us a source of comfort, which is he, his person, and all you, so that we can be a comfort to others. And so, the, and I think the third thing is, and they're also interconnected, but the third thing, they're all such simple things, but the third thing is be certain that we do what Paul tells us to do at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. In other words, our whole attitude and our whole demeanor in our life, and all three of those things are not easy to do. Who in the world wants to rejoice always? I don't know about you, but I enjoy a pity party every now and I want to invite you to it. I'm being a little facetious here, but what Paul is saying is, if, if here is your response of trust in God is going to be manifested in your attitude of gratitude, your joy. It's going to be manifested by your desire to be talking to him all the time, pray without ceasing, and by your thankful spirit. I think I, told, I teach so many different classes in a week, but I, I think I brought this up last week. Uh, if I did, stop me. But to illustrate that third point, my wife has just shaken me in this area. A very, very, very close friend of hers. Her daughter has just been diagnosed with stage four cancer. I mean, she's gonna, she's gonna die. I mean, there's just, there's nothing. They're, they're trying to give her some extra months and so on to live. And so, with this young guy, she's 32, I think. With this girl, who's a mother, several kids, husband, and all that. You know what this girl does every morning? She wakes up if she goes through her regimen and the things she needs to do for her health issues and all that as a result of the chemo and all that. She sits down with her journal and writes 10 things she's thankful for. Just think about that. That when Peggy shared, so my wife, you know, I don't want you to know her, she struggles with a number of uh, physical heart condition and autoimmune disease and some other things, but she started to do that. She just journal what she uses, and she started to, to write down the things she's thankful for that day. And so I've, you know, my, my wife is doing this. She was telling me about it, and she was saying, this is really it's such a helpful thing for me as I begin my day. Because what is it? Your focus is on the Lord. Your focus is on what you're grateful for him, that he's done and, and, and given you what you're thankful for. I don't know about you. Maybe you, you guys aren't like that at all. I know you're not, so you don't know what I'm talking about. But I can be a griper and a complainer. I, I know you don't know what that means, but I can be a griper and a complainer. And so to, for, to hear my wife say, honey, I'm beginning my day with making a, she doesn't necessarily make it 10, but with a list of things I'm thankful for to God. That has changed. This is only a couple of weeks ago. That's changed how I'm I, sure. I didn't hear that. Uh, what does she say? She, she wakes up. And, it, well, I told you what my wife does. Like that yeah, she yeah, makes, yeah. And she's it's challenged me to try to do the same thing to begin my day, not by griping and complaining or the stress that I'm under and all that, but to thank the Lord for a series of things. And uh, I think that is all a part of that prayer. And I'm, I'm done. I'm preaching here. I mean, that's part of what this trust looks like. 
Because don't think you can figure out what God is doing. You are not going to figure it out. And this is what Solomon is, is processing here. So you have a choice. I either reject all this stuff about God that his Bible teaches me, or I accept it. And the more we're around other Christians, the more we're around other believers, we're on the same journey we're on, and we're sharing things with us, we say, I'm not on this journey alone. I'm with other believers. We're all headed to the same place. And so we can share and build it. The Greek, the New Testament words are to encourage one another, comfort one another, edify one another. And you, you can the, the the Lone Ranger Christian is an oxymoron. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. Or a Lone Ranger Christian is trying to live their lives, going to be frustrated and going to be defeated. You need other people, and that that is so vital for the Christian life. We are the organic body of Christ, and that the functioning that way is what's liberating. All right, would it be all right if I get into the Bible now? Would that be okay? <laughs> but I wanted to lay the groundwork because if you if we don't have this groundwork of what Solomon's doing here, we don't understand why he's doing this. Okay, so he starts. I'm in verse 16. The very first thing he brings up is the issue of injustice. I saw under the sun that in the place of justice. Even there was wickedness in the place of righteousness. Even there was wickedness. Okay, what does he mean? In the place of justice. Now, in the ancient world, they had a court system. Now, it isn't like our court system in the United States, you know, at the federal level, Supreme Court, district courts of appeal, district courts, the state, we have a state Supreme Court, you know, it isn't that. It was usually associated with a palace, but it was a place of justice. So Solomon is saying, I look at the place of justice, and what do I see? Wickedness. I see wickedness. Solomon, Solomon says, I look in the place of justice, and what do I see? I see it's the opposite. I don't see justice. I see corruption. I see wickedness. He goes in verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work takes you back to the beginning of this chapter, affirming the sovereignty of God, affirming the providence of God. And then he's been thinking about this. He's been meditating upon this. And he reaches this conclusion. I'm in verse 18. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of men, of men that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. And you step back and say, what, what, what? The presence of injustice is one of my favorite words. Get ready. The presence of injustice from the sovereign providential God, why he permits it, why he allows it, is didactic. It's one of my favorite words. Isn't that a great word? It's didactic. It teaches us something. What does it teach us? that humans often behave like animals. Their behavior is not righteous. It's not just. Their behavior is just the opposite. And that unjust behavior even creeps into the judiciary system. And Solomon is saying it teaches fallen, finite, temporal, depraved people that here is the consequence of what sin does. Human beings can act like animals. Does that make sense to you? That makes sense to me. Because I watched that stuff that happened to that, 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 that young boy out, out in the West, uh, Midwest, uh, Trevor, you, you read about that, where these five policemen beat this young kid. One guy, one policeman took pictures of him, sent it to five of his people, rejoicing what they had done. Man, that's not justice. That's depravity. And I mean, you can, at any level, you can see that. So when I read what Psalms, I said, good night, that's, that's as relevant as if it was written yesterday morning. And what he's saying, God is still sovereign, God's still providential, he's still infinite, eternal, perfect. 
He's righteous. But listen, this is a fallen, broken world. And the presence of injustice in our world says something to us. This is how bad you really are. Turning it into a positive, this is how much you need me. Because I'm the only one who can correct this. And then he makes a comment in verse 19. Well, what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As the one dies, so does the other. Now, he's brought this up throughout the book. Even the brutes of the animal kingdom die, just like man dies. They all have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the beast for all his vanity. In that sense, man has no advantage because they, just like, just like humans, beasts die. But then he says something. All go to one place. All from the dust to the dust they return. Takes you back to Genesis. God creates out of the dust. Remember that in, when he creates humans and so on. But who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, the spirit of the beast goes down. Now, what he's saying there, this is there's theology, but what he's saying, there's a mystery here. Even though they both die, is eternity the same for the animal as for the human? What's the answer to that question? No, it's not. There is no evidence in the Bible that an animal has an eternal soul or spirit. There's no evidence of that. But everywhere in the Bible is the evidence that humanity has an eternal soul or spirit. And that human beings are going to live either eternity, eternal life with God in heaven, or eternal life separated from God in a place called hell. Or more accurately, the final place, which is a lake of fire. And so that's what's all comment. That's all Solomon, Solomon's commenting on here. There is a difference between the man. They both die. They're both headed to the same temporal finite end, but their eternity is different. So he concludes. So therefore, I saw that there's nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his law. He's taking us back to what he said at the end of chapter 2. He says what he said about middle of chapter 3. God gives us the gift of joy. And joy, however brief your life is, however brief your calling is, and joy what God's given you to do. Can you figure this all out? Nope. There's a mystery to everything God's doing. And even there's a mystery between the difference between the animal kingdom. And, so can you figure it all out completely and totally? No. So enjoy what God gets. an absolute demonstration of our trust in him. He's given us the capacity to enjoy life. So. Jim, um, and this is true, and I think we all believe that. Um, and we were in Christ. If in fact this is true, that people are going to die, our, our friends, our relatives, some of our families, and they are going to go to hell, and they are going to go to hell. And so we can, if we ask for the strength to witness, to that toughest of all family members that we might have out there, really, knowing that he or she has no interest in the things of God, and if we truly love that should overcome any hesitation to yeah. share Christ in a way it's loving and kind, the things that reflect the nature of God. Don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's always important to. I mean, I mean well, because it's not easy to do sometimes. Oh, it's not, it's not easy at all, particularly if the person's heart is very hard and they don't particularly want to hear. There's a, a guy in. Uh, one of my Bible studies, I had 
been in a discipleship relationship with him. He's a neat guy. He's a football player for the Huskers a couple of, uh, almost two decades ago. He might know his name actually, but I won't mention it. But anyway, uh, he's really, a, he's, what God has done in his life is phenomenal. He's just an incredible guy. He just sold his business. He's sort of retired. He came up to me the other day in class. He said, my dad had a, his dad lives out near Broken Bow. My dad had a severe stroke. And he said, they met him into the med center. And he said, uh, I went up to see him because he has shared Christ with his dad. His dad wants nothing to do with Christ. Hard, hard, hard. And he said, in the hospital bed, I'm talking to my dad about Jesus. My dad had had a stroke. He can't hardly move. He turned his head to the right. He didn't even want to look at me. An act of defiance. And he just said, what do I do? And I said, I don't have any magic words except just keep sharing with him the importance of not going into eternity without Christ. He's 85 years old. His entire life, he has rejected everything to do with Christianity. He wants nothing to do with it. What do you say to a guy like that? He loves his dad. He wants his dad to be in heaven. But he's facing the reality that his dad, who had a severe stroke, can hardly speak, but he can still hear. And all I said is, Ken, as you provide opportunity, as God provides opportunity, boldly give him the message again. And I said to him, and I, there's a, a relative of mine that's amazing what God's done in that area. But I said, pray that God would soften his heart. Because the, the, first John, te- or, um, John 16 teaches us that the spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's preparatory work of the spirit. The spirit does that. You don't do that. I don't do that. Now that this dear guy that I know very well, in in desperation about his dad, here's that mystery of divine sovereignty, and he, you know that that mystery, but only God can melt his heart. So I, you know, it, it, I I pray that, that that this this older gentleman will put his faith in Christ before he dies. But Ken has been faithful as a son. He has been faithful in talking to his dad about the Lord. But it's like in all things, you're faithful when God asks you to do the results to God. It, 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 you, there are no guarantees. My uncle, who's 80 years old, who uh, he's really, it's interesting, he's my mother's brother. I tried to reconnect with him after many years. We did that several years ago when we were back to Pennsylvania and one of our trips. And uh, really developed a good relationship. He got real sick. He had back surgery. He had pulmonary ab- um, embolism, almost died. Uh, he's in a ward right now, very sick, uh, and he got COVID <laughs> in the ward. Just, uh, really, really, you know, I've talked to him, and it's really neat. He is so, he's come to know the Lord. His heart is so soft, and he, we pray together over the phone, and he's, he tears. I can hear him. Tears are coming. He has a whole new perspective about everything, and he wants his brother, my other uncle, uh, that's my mother's brother. His heart is extremely hard. He left home when he was 19 years old and has never seen most of the family. And uh, we've been praying for him for a couple of decades. His heart is so hard. But now with his brother being sick, he's calling almost every day. So, you know, is, is what's God doing? Why is he allowing this to happen to my Uncle Paul? Well, among other things... Is giving a new inroad for my Uncle Tom, whose heart is so hardened against the Lord. Is God at work in all this? Yeah. Can you figure it out? No. <laughs> so what's your only option? Trust. I'm being faithful, but I'm trusting God. This is what Solomon's saying. And is, is there injustice in the world? Yes. But injustice teaches you something. The brutality of finite temple depraved people. Even in the judiciary system. Secondly, can I go back to the Bible now? Secondly, yeah. So well, Strong's has a real deep definition for mystery. Huh. It says it is something, it is not something unknowable, rather, it is what can only be known through revelation because mm-hmm. God reveals it. Yeah, that's good. 
That's good. I've liked that. I've seen that before. Yeah, good. Yeah. Yep. Colombo doesn't solve our mysteries. That's a joke. If you didn't, <laughs> he, that's the greatest mystery show on TV. Uh, it isn't on anymore, but it was a great show years ago. Yeah, Father Brown is the other one. One of Chesterton, great. Oh. All right, you know what I'm talking about. Let's move into the next one. The second thing he brings up in the first verse of chapter four is oppression. And I saw all oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, they had no comfort to them. On the side of their oppressors, power, there was no one to comfort them. Let's stop there for a minute. So, I mean, you know, Solomon lived over 3,000 years ago. If you think oppression is available today to observe in our world, it was huge in the ancient world. I mean, you know, the old, when you talk about the top 1%, you've heard about that stuff in our economy and stuff. Listen, the top 1% in the ancient world, the other 99%, there wasn't a middle class. You had the top 1% and everybody else. <laughs> And they're being oppressed by the wealthy landowners. And they're being conscripted into slave labor. They're taxed to the hilt. And I mean, they're living, they're living a lie, uh, they're living lives that, that result from this oppression, almost confiscatory taxation. And Solomon's observed, and by the way, Solomon's one of those who did that. He's gonna say Solomon's bring his himself. rule. So he says, What I see is there's no comfort for them. Whereas the so important. What do the oppressors have that the oppressed do not have? Power. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, are more fortunate than the living. <laughs> There's a horrible thing to say, but yet, it's like a proverbial observation. The oppressed are in such destitute situation, the dead no longer struggling with that. It's over. It's not saying anybody eternity, it's not, not making any comment about where, where you spent. He's just saying the life of the oppressed is horrific. And he goes on. Verse three, better then both is he who has not yet been, the one who isn't even born yet, has not seen the evil deeds of the unknown son. Now, this is, this is, again, this is one of those things that if you believe in a God who's sovereign and providential, is infinitely eternal, perfect, holy, and righteous, you ask yourself, why does he allow oppression? That's what Psalm is saying. In, in effect, because he's brought God into the picture, and all, why does God allow this? And Solomon says, I can't figure that out. This doesn't make sense to me. And he's the wisest man who ever lived. But unlike the little comments he had about injustice and so on, he has no comments about this. Just an observation. And the, the, when you study history, you really see the depths of what he's saying. But even today, you see it. I mean, in the United States, but you get outside of the United States even, even more severely. And you have to step back and say, why does God allow this? As we get a little bit further into the book, and, and you already know this because you know other parts of the Bible. The Bible assures us of something. When Jesus returns, he will settle all accounts. Those who have oppressed using the ruthless power, they are answerable to God. And that's a, that's a simple statement of fact in the Bible. And so, again, when you look at this crazy chart I put up on the board, you're dealing with, okay, you, 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 your trust is, the Bible tells me that God is going to settle accounts. Next issue. That's it. He doesn't answer anything. He doesn't do anything. He just says, this is really hard for me. Now, the next one is, by the next one, I mean the next area he brings up of these contradictions, things he can't figure, the mysteries of, of this fallen, broken world. 
even we who know God and walk with God, is still, he wants to deal with some, I, when I was studying this and outlining it, I didn't know what to call it. So I, I talked here about the motivations of why we do what we do. The motivations of our, our work, the motivations of, 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 our, of our lives. And the first one he brings up is envy. And so in verse 4 and into verse 5, then I saw that all the toil and all the skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. Now, when he says all the toil and labor, that's obviously hyperbole. Uh, hyperbole is the language of exaggeration. That's, that's mean everything's like. But in one sense, it's it's kind of a an interesting observation: a finite temple depraved, rebellious sinners. I don't know about you, but there is an awful lot of envy out there as a motivation of why people do what they do. Is that an abstract idea, or do you understand what he's saying? There's a lot of that there. It's a silence, just I am making that observation. But then he seems to propose a solution by telling a proverb. And it's in verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Yuck, what in the world does that mean? Because better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. So verse 5 and verse 6, when he's observed envy as a motivation of people, you know this, a fool, in pursuing his life, in pursuing his vocation, pursuing his work, if he folds his hands. What, what, what does that mean? Yeah. The fool folds his hands. Work. He does do it. And he eats his own flesh. Now, this is a proverb. So it's a self-destructive way to live. You fold your hand and just, that's a self-destructive way to live. So he says, better is a handful of quietness than two handful of toil and striving after wind. Again, that's a proverb. So the solution to envy, the solution to envy as a motivation for why you do what you do is not take the position of the fool is to choose contentment satisfied with where you are at this point in your life better is a handful of quietness now again this is figurative language it's proverb but quietness. what is that that's not the fool sitting there not doing anything but quietness is an is a figure of speech for contentment and have two handfuls of toilets driving at the wind. He has brought that up before. It's all over the place. It's a theme, major theme of Philippians chapter 4 as well. Now, contentment does not mean there's no ambition. Contentment doesn't mean there are no goals. Contentment doesn't mean there's no strategic planning and thinking. That's not what it means. Contentment is a very difficult term to satisfactorily explain because contentment you can infer from that word well then that means i don't know i don't plan i just i just tread water no no that's not what it means contentment is i'm satisfied i'm going to put it with that spiritual spin on it but contentment is i'm satisfied with where god has me now does that mean I don't plan? No, that's not what it means. The Bible's filled with that. Does that mean I, I don't have strategies and plans for it? No, that's not what it means. 
But instead of motivate, being motivated by envy, I want what my neighbor has and I'll never be satisfied till I get it. Solomon says, well, <laughs> the response to that is you don't sit like the fool and don't know anything. The response to that, reducing the tension of that is contentment. I'm satisfied with where God has me now. Do I have ambition? Yes. Do I have goals? Yes. Do I put plans together for my future? Yes. But I'm trusting God for the outcome of all that. So I'm content with where he has me now. If I don't want you to do, I don't want you to respond to this, but if I were to ask you, brutally honest before God, are you content? Yeah. Or are you unsettled? Younger guys, it's really hard to get, because I've worked with young guys all my life, you know, in, in, their, in their early 20s. And you, you, a lot of these guys, it's hard for them to be content. And they just want to maul everybody over to get from here to there. And then, you know, okay, how do you, met, how do you perfectly match contentment with ambition, goals, and plan? Yeah. Well, because you can't do that until it's all over. <laughs> you're not smart enough when you're young. Get the education as you get older, and before you know it, you can't do it anymore. So it's kind of a upside down thing about life. Too soon old, too late smart. As the old son said. But I'm not complaining. <laughs> not complaining. All right, you guys online with me? We are. Yep. All right. Good. Indeed. <laughs> All right. We're. Uh, I got about eight minutes. Let me look at the the second item that he brings up, and it's 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 wonderful that he does bring that up. But it's the issue of greed. And I'm going to. Uh, boy, I hope I can get through this. It goes through verse twelve. Um. Verse 7 and 8. And I saw vanity under the sun. There's his favorite way of talking about things. One person who has no other, either son or brother, that there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. Okay, now, he's kind of painting the picture. Here you have an individual. He has no relatives. I mean, he's really alone. He has no relative, no son, no brother, etc. So what is it? What's his lifestyle? He's never satisfied with riches. So what word would you use? I'm choosing to use the word greed. It's a little bit like I, I think I've told you this before. In, in the early 20th century, a man named John D. Rockefeller was doing an interview, extremely well, probably the wealthiest man in the United States at that time. And the reporter said, Mr. Rockefeller, what do you want? You remember his answer? Just a little bit more. Which, I mean, you, when you think about it, I mean, at one level, you think, well, yeah, I guess I can understand it. But at another level, why? He had so much money. It was an incredibly wealthy man. But and this, is what, this is what Solomon is observing. Here's a man. He doesn't, have any, he doesn't have family. He doesn't have relatives, no brother, no son, all that. And what does he do? He's not ever satisfied with riches. So that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? And that rhetorical question, he never asked for him. I took. He is so focused on the greedy accumulation of material wealth, he never enjoys life. I'm, I'm going to add some accoutrements to it. He doesn't enjoy life. He never takes a vacation. He doesn't have to do anything for leisure. He just works, 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 and accumulate more. Accumulate more. And Solomon looks at that and he says. Is that pursuing greed in the midst of isolation? To pursuing greed when you have no other relatives, loved ones that you really care about? Does that make sense to live your life like that? Well, actually, though, in the human heart, that keeps the human, being, the human race running. You know, what's the next big thing? And so you go after kind of the human condition. And that keeps you running, you know? So greed is good. 
Well, it all depends on you're green. <laughs> green is you're never satisfied with what you have. You're talking about is not greed. Yeah, right. right. I'm saying it defined as uh, greed versus ambition. Ambition is desiring something at the service of others, and greed is something where you are desiring something at the expense of others. That that's Russ. That's very good. That's a good way to that's a good way to to, to phrase that. Um, one thinks, you know, in in a very familiar story of the world. But, quite accustomed to is Ebenezer Scrooge. You know, he had no family, he had no loved ones, he wasn't no children or anything like that. He had one nephew, if you know the story. But his entire life was just amassing wealth. And the what Dickens wants us to understand is he was a very wealthy man. But he didn't care about it. He had no compassion. He had remember the the two guys from the rich uh, people in London come. They're raising a fund to help people during the holidays. And he says, are, "Are the are the treadmills not working? Are the prisons not?" You know, he says, "My taxes support those. That's where those people should go. But they can't go. Well, then they should die. The you know, the surplus population. I mean, that is not a compassionate heart. That's a hard heart pursuing one thing. And so." Then the story of the Christmas carol is that redemption of Ebenezer Scrooge, as you know the story. What Solomon is saying, I've observed an individual like that. So here's a solution. And he gives a series of proverbs. The solution, and it's so fabulous when you think about it from the divine perspective. This is what God has provided for us. Companionship. Friendship. Two are better than one because they have great reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. Woe to him who's alone when he falls and has no one to lift him up. Two lie together, they keep warm. They can comfort, help one another in time of need. And then finally, and though the man must prevail, who's alone, two will withstand him. So he's saying the solution to this Self-isolation and loneliness produces this pursuit of greed is companionship, friendship. Two are better than one. When you have someone with you in times of difficulty, someone can comfort and there's protection in a time of danger. Listen, what was the very first thing God said about Adam? That's a Hebrew word for Adam. Man, it is not good for man to be alone. And God creates a community. That community is the family. And then God creates the community of Israel. And God creates the community of the state. And God creates, after the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, the community of the church. God did not create human beings to be alone. He created humans being to be living in community. And the, the four major thing institutions God created are all community. And so the, Solomon is just making an observation about life and a solution. And so you look at that. Here's my providential sovereign God. In his infinite, eternal, perfect creative act, he's created in bread to humanity the solution. It's community, it's companionship, it's friendship. And his inference seems to be that is an antidote to greed. Because immediately you care about somebody else. You're involved in investing, I don't mean financially, but you're investing in somebody else's life. 
And again, that's the way God created us. And you start to, oh, I understand something about God now. Because God is three in one. God is one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. And that community, in a different theological concept, but the community of the Godhead explains the community of the image bearers. That's why God created what he created. Don't you sometimes get the impression that God really knows what he's doing? <laughs> All right. Now, I did get through this. I didn't think we could get it done. But tomorrow, or I mean, uh, when do we meet? Next Wednesday. I want to start with verse uh, 13 because in chapter 4, he, he deals with another one of these seeming contradictions that he can't figure out. What? What's motivating people to do certain things? Envy's one, greed's another. He wants to talk now about obsession, and that we'll get into next week and some of the things. All right? We're going to do verse 12. Yeah. Uh, I, I mentioned that, but though a man might prevail against one who's alone, two will withstand him. The idea there, Woody, is that fourth item, protection in the time of danger. If you're with someone, you're not alone, you'll be able to help one another in time of danger. Threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's another proverb. Does that make sense? Kind of like the Trinity. Well, yes, in a way. Yeah, yes, sort of, yeah. You're getting it, Woody. All right, I need to pray here and, and get out of here. Uh, I have the other thing I get to. Father, I'm amazed at... Uh, the observation powers of Solomon. Uh, I love where we are in the book right now because it illustrates again our finite temporal situation as human beings in this fallen, broken world. We're never going to completely, totally, comprehensively, exhaustively understand everything you're doing. There's a mystery about life, but Lord, you are the only one that can help us and a response so often is not total understanding of what you're doing, but it's trust in what you're doing. Lord, one of the things that the Bible says over and over again, without faith, it is impossible to please God. The Bible says also we walk by faith, not by sight. So, Lord, sometimes when we can't figure things out, our still, our fallback, uh, really our default position is always one of faith. Lord, give us that growing capacity in our journey of sanctification. A growing capacity to trust you, to have confidence in you, to believe in you, to have faith in you. So the mark of the growing Christian is a mark of faith. So I pray for these men here on, in the room as well as online, that we may continue to grow as men of faith, strong men of faith, who trust you, who live for you, who don't always necessarily understand everything that you're doing, but we trust you because we know you're good. We know you're perfect. We know you're just. And even when there are things that are so horrible that we can't understand, we know what the Bible says. There's coming a day when you're going to settle all accounts. You're going to make right everything that's been done. We even faith, find trust and faith and confidence. So, Lord, dismiss us now with your blessings as we go our separate ways. We want to represent you well. Help us to do that in your son's name. Amen.